0: The dark days are done And the bright days are here My sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true I love you Thank you, Doc. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on The New Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you. Thank you. This is John Barber. That, of course, was Sarita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra. Saying, Here's Johnny, the night he hosted the Tonight Show. I'd like to thank David Lisby for crafting that wonderful visual opening for me. And I want to thank especially Don and Doug Newsom, the owners of BBS Radio, who talked me into doing this enterprise. We're going live around the world video for the first time because evidently he said our little radio show is becoming very, very successful. So Don is in California. Right now, he is going to be the technical director and the director of the show. Don, can you hear me? I can hear Okay, then I want you to say hello, world, since this is your idea. Thank you. Well, hello,
1: world. You're going to be tuning in to John Barber's World, and it's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, John.
0: Well, thank you so much. As you'll see in an undertaking like this for the first time, there might be some technical difficulties, but it proves that we're live and it's the best it is the very best way to go and one of the things that I like about being live oh by the way you'll be hearing about from Don later on in the show and also as these shows go on you'll be hearing from yourself because we're going to be doing a lot of call-ins because I found doing these kinds of shows that often the viewers have more interesting and funnier things to say for example last week on Facebook because we had live in such a short attention span society i said people are so impatient now they're yelling hurry up to three minute eggs and one of you wrote in and said john right now instant gratification is taking much too long also the other advantage of going live is you send me a lot of great videos i can't show you on the radio but i can definitely show you now but most importantly i have always been luckier when I've gone live. My first big break was going live with the AM show that I created in Los Angeles. We were the first person to have people phone into a morning news show. It it became the most popular show in LA. And then when Real People, which I created, went live on NBC, it became the number one show in America. Now we're going live with John Barber's World on the internet. It will not be the best show on the internet but it'll be the best show to come out of this little room in Las Vegas. I am so thrilled to have the very last articulate human being in television as my first guest, because on the show, my very first live video show, I do not want to do politics. I mean, in a Trumpified America, where both camps, pro and con, have been turned into the Hatfields and McCoys. Civil discourse is almost impossible. And by the way, I should tell you that the Russians who are trying to hack into our November elections to sway them have given up. They abandoned the idea because they they were blocked and beaten to it by the Israelis. And speaking of hackers... I've been waiting 18 years for the FBI to bring indictments against the 12 Republicans who stole the Florida election and turned it over to George Mad Dog Bomber shock and awe Bush with what a lot of politicians say is still an illegal presidency. So we're not going to talk politics at all. What we're going to talk about is movies, but not new movies because most of these are are comic strips. We're gonna talk about old movies, black and white movies, film noir movies. You saw them in black and white, but the themes were black and white, good versus evil, and the good guys versus the bad guys, the white hats versus the black hats. You know, when I was 30 years of age and John Kennedy was killed, I can remember exactly where I was. But having come from a very dysfunctional family in Toronto as a kid, long before it was popular, when I wasn't haunting the library or the hockey rink, I was haunting movie theaters. Between the ages of 6 and 12, I can remember exactly where I was when some of these great moments occurred in some of these unforgettable films. For example, Richard Widmark, as Tommy Udo in Kiss of Death and he's pushing a crippled old lady in a wheelchair down the stairs and he starts cackling. (laughs) I imitated that cackle for years and Jimmy Cagney at the end of White Heat going up in flames hollering, look Ma on top of the world. These were the movies that brought me to Hollywood. And when I got to Hollywood, I became the first critic on the news. Now they're as common as Weather Girls, I was five years at KNBC and 10 years at Los Angeles Magazine. I replaced the brilliant Burt Polutsky, who had recommended me for that job. And I remember some of his great one line reviews of movies. For example, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, he said, it starts out with a bang and ends up chitty. But these wits are absent in America anymore. They're absent in television. They're as hard to find in this country now as skinny people and peace candidates. But they did exist at one time in black and white television also. I got into television because of great talkers. First of all, Jack Parr, the greatest host of The Tonight Show, America's greatest conversationalist. Ed Murrow, the last great Wonderful investigative journalist who single-handedly brought down Joe McCarthy's witch hunt about commies. And then we had Firing Line with William F. Buckley, verbally sword fighting with that articulate witty Gore Vidal. And who can forget that wonderful, wonderful erudite Englishman on omnibus, Alastair Cook. And then we had Cosmos on PBS with Carl Sagan. And then, of course, there was David Susskind in Open End. And then the man who replaced the number one show in America, which was Milton Burrell, another wonderful erudite speaker, Bishop Fulton Sheen. And, of course, who can forget the very charming Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes? They do not exist in television anymore except one. And he's not on network television where he belongs. He is a treasure tucked away on weekends on Turner Classic movies as the host of Film Noir or Noir Alley. Now, when I first tuned in to watch some of these movies to remember my days as a child, I stumbled accidentally across this treasure. And I must tell you, I am now a junkie. And I'm so glad that my fix is my first guest on this video undertaking of John Barber's World. Because if you watch the movies, they become much more interesting and much more exciting because of his remarkable insights, his ability to tell stories, and also, unlike TCM in their logs, he always credits the writer. It is indeed a pleasure for me to welcome the host of Film Noir, I'm his biggest fan, Ed Muller. Ed, thank you so much for being here. If
2: my mother was still alive and heard me introduced in a litany of those names that you just recited, I think you would have killed her. You would have given her a heart attack, uh, putting me in the same group with Jack Parr and Bishop Sheen. and the, uh, That was amazing.
0: Okay, well, I, so now I, I don't, I'm
2: suitably humbled. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction.
0: Well, you since you mentioned your mother, and I'm glad you mentioned your father, your mother, I'm going to mention your father because three times I've seen this when they're doing promos of your show. And you come up and you start talking about your father. No matter what I'm doing, I stop and listen because evidently he was the greatest inspiration in your life. You wouldn't be doing this probably if it weren't for your father. So would you please tell us again a little bit about your father and how you got interested in old films.
2: Um, Well, I can tell you about my father and it's not gonna necessarily dovetail with my interest in films because my dad didn't really inspire that in me. But uh, he was a sports writer and he worked for the San Francisco Examiner when it was the flagship of the Hearst Empire. Uh, And what was particularly inspiring to me about my dad is that he uh, had this job that uh, made him a big wheel in San Francisco, and he was a guy who barely graduated from high school. He did not go to, they didn't really have journalism stuff back then. He didn't go to college and study journalism. Uh, He was a street-level reporter. He made his contacts and nosed around and figured out the game and who was who. And, uh, and became very, very adept at it, and he was inspired by writers uh, like Damon Runyon and Paul Gallico and these fantastic people, and, um, and just was sort of self-taught, and uh, that I was always very inspiring to me. Um, I ended up being more, shall we say, artistically inclined uh, than my father was, but I always applied many of the lessons that I, I sort of just absorbed uh, being his son and figured out how to do things on my own, and, um, you know, that, that was pretty much it. I mean, he was, he was a very inspiring uh, character for me, and, and uh, you know, he had one employer, his entire life, which when I look back on the breadth of his life, that's probably, given the way the world operates now, that's probably the single most astounding thing about his life, is that he went to work at the newspaper as a copy boy when he was 13 years old, and many, many years later, 52 years later, uh, he retired working for the same employer all those years, which I I don't know if that's even possible anymore.
0: Well, it's not possible that there were literally thousands or maybe millions of people during your father's time who did the same thing, working for General Motors or anything else. Now, you say you were inclined to be more artistic. Were you more interested in in painting or writing? How did that express itself?
2: Uh, Interesting that you ask that, because, yeah, when I was young, I was more interested in visual arts and I, I could draw and I could paint and I went to uh, the San Francisco Art Institute right out of high school and that was what I was studying and then I took a filmmaking class while I was there because I was intrigued by that as well and, and I took a creative writing class and then the next thing I knew I was more interested in sort of combining these two things than I was in just Strictly being an illustrator or a painter, and uh, and and then lo and behold, I had to make a living, and again inspired by my father, I I always knew I could write. So even though I had absolutely no credentials as such, and I never went to uh, you know I never took a university course in journalism or anything, I uh, I went to a local magazine and I said uh, I can do this, and they uh, they hired me and. And that's what I've done. That's how I've earned my living ever since I was 22 years old. Uh, I have learned it with words. I have learned it and earned it with words.
0: Well, you're an absolute craftsman with them. I, I just am, I'm just, spellbound. spellbound when you start speaking about some of the backgrounds in the film. Now, it seems then if you became a writer, you never actually graduated or interested in becoming more of a filmmaker, but evidently you became an enormous student of films.
2: Uh, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did. I have made films. I have made documentary films. I've made my own short films and things. Uh, But I'm very independent in in the way I approach things. And, you know, making films is a a vast uh, enterprise. It calls for immense collaboration. And you have to go out and find the money. (laughs) <laughs> which, which that, that part of it doesn't really interest me that much. Uh, and that has never changed. You know, Orson Welles said that he spent 80% of his time in the movie business asking for money. And I know it has not changed because I've talked to contemporary filmmakers who tell me the exact same thing. And and that's not something I really enjoy doing. So, um, yeah, I just became very, very interested in... Um, not just the cinema, but um, history as seen through the cinema. Either the way films treat history or how history uh, guides the film business itself. That that has always been fascinating to me. So it should come as no surprise that the era that I specialize in and the fact that I, I am considered a quote-unquote expert in film noir is, um, all of that happened at one of the most intriguing periods in american history that mid-20th century era where so many things were happening and the art was really changing dramatically and there were in important cultural factors affecting the art and uh, i i just found it fascinating and so I, I wrote a book about it dark city the lost world of film noir almost 20 years ago now and um and then was invited to program film festivals based on that book. <clears throat> and lo and behold, that went on for a number of years, and then, and then gradually my connection to TCM happened in a very organic way, and the result of it has been that they have... Uh, Uh, very graciously uh, provided me with this uh, weekly forum to present movies and talk about them. So it's it's Uh, fantastic. how,
0: how, How did it actually happen at TCM? Because it's entirely unique and entirely original. And even though you talk about films that come out of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, it is so contemporary just to sit there and listen to you and then go back and see those films in a new light. So how how did that happen? Did they approach you or was it your book or the success you had at these film festivals? How did it come about?
2: Um, a number of years ago, I think it was 2002 maybe, uh, I published a book called Dark City Dames, which was about six actresses who were sort of synonymous with film noir. And back then, um, TCM, that's when they did their first um, summer festival called Summer of Darkness. That was like a three-month uh, program. Everything, I think it was every Friday night was all film noir. Uh, and they wanted, because... Um, I had given, shown a spotlight, if you will, on these actresses, uh, they were all still alive. And so TCM wanted to get them to sit down for interviews, and honestly, that was the, the initial connection I had with TCM. I didn't do the interviews, and I wasn't on camera, but um, I am the one that they came to, to to help arrange this and talk the women into appearing, and then just over the years, uh, our paths kept crossing. I mean, it's interesting to note that my first my first um, exposure to Robert Osborne was actually separate from TCM because Robert had his own film festival in Athens, Georgia, which he invited me to come and present several movies at his film festival. So I thought I, – it's interesting to note that I actually – worked as a presenter with robert osborne first separate from tcm at which i felt voted well for uh, for eventually being on the network because i know i had robert's vote of confidence um and then that's exactly what happened i mean little by little uh there would be a a, a noir type thing it was a the first one i did i think was about the writers i did a series uh, a Friday Night Spotlight shows that was about uh, noir writers.
0: Good for you. thank you, John, okay. for, for, applause, for, for applause. noticing. <laughs> yes, me? I noticed because I've written a couple of angry letters to TCM. If it's not written by Patty Shayevsky or Shakespeare, you never know who writes it. So let me get back to this. First, <laughs> uh, writers, the six ladies you talked about, who, who, uh, name two or three of them that you found the most interesting and what was, because you had to talk them into appearing there. I don't know who interviewed them. You certainly should have, but they only did it because they were asked to buy you and you'd written this book. But in doing this research, what were the most startling things about two or three of these women, these stars, and please name them.
2: Well, um, they were Jane Greer and Audrey Totter and Marie Windsor and Ann Savage and Evelyn Keys and Colleen Gray. Those were oh, the six actors. I, I love today. Evelyn
0: Keys. I think she was married to Artie Shaw at one time.
2: Uh, she was still married to Artie Shaw, and I talked to her because he would come by the apartment every so often when we oh, were
0: talking. that's fabulous. Well. I I met Artie when I was doing the Merv Griffin show, and he told me that they eventually divorced because they argued over who was going to change the toilet paper. I mean, it was something really weird.
2: Yeah, it was going to be something. It was going to be something. And Evelyn still had, I I always noticed when we went out to eat or something, and it was Evelyn's turn to pay that uh, her credit card still said Evelyn Shaw.
0: Oh my God. That's, that's hilarious. Now, the writers, tell me about a couple of the writers, because I know I go into Moose and Frank's all the time in Hollywood uh, Boulevard, and they have a couple of stories on their menu about some of the writers there. Tell me about two or three of the writers that you found the most fascinating, something quite unusual about them, And maybe one writer who didn't get the credit he quite deserved.
2: Well, the writer who didn't get the credit that he deserved is a fellow named Jonathan Latimer, who was responsible for writing a lot of the best film noir screenplays. Uh, And he was very, very adept at adapting good writers uh, like Dashiell Hammett or or Kenneth Fearing, who wrote The Big Clock. Latimer did the adaptation of that. He did... uh, Uh, a wonderful movie um, for John Farrell called Alias Nick Beale. He wrote the screenplay for that. Uh, And then he would eventually go on to become a regular writer on The Perry Mason Show in the 1950s. But um, during the 1940s, I think Latimer was probably like the the secret weapon in film noir. He he mostly wrote for Paramount, Uh, but nobody really knows who he is as compared to, say, uh, Ben Hecht who you know to me is one of the you know towering uh, figures of America in the 20th century and uh, you know Ed, having been a new, newspaper man me. in Chicago
0: and excuse yeah. me applause 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 because next to Mark Twain Ben Hecht is my very favorite writer based on one book called The Child of the Century it is by yeah. far the best book ever written about anyone in show business. Now, maybe since you mentioned Beck, Ben Heck, since he invented the gangster movie with Gar- Scarface, tells a great story about being approached by the hoods at Paramount not to make the movie. And and if you want to elaborate on that, and then his input, which was surprising, into Gone with the Wind. I found that startling and hilarious.
2: Well, yeah, he in addition to being such an original writer, and also... A writer and director because he did have very strong ideas about how movies should be made and he when he made his own movies uh, like the scoundrel or um, crime of passion crime without passion um, they were very um, innovative and and very very different from the stuff he would write uh, for the studios Uh, but he also became the highest-paid script doctor in Hollywood, which is how he ended up working on Gone with the Wind. It's funny, you know, when you go on IMDb and you look at Ben Heck's credits, it's almost gotten to the point where he seems to have a credit <laughs> virtually every movie made in Hollywood. It, whether it's true or not, because he, you know he had such a reputation that the rumors got you know oh yeah Heck Heck ended up rewriting that script and Heck wrote that script and it's it's very hard to tell what's true and what isn't. But well, uh, he, in yeah, the he, book, he, he, he was a phenomenon.
0: When he was a, a a columnist in Chicago, he made a bet with someone that he could write a best selling mystery over the weekend, and he did, Florentine Dagger. Now. Now, do, you want to, do you want to tell the folks? Because people do not believe me when I tell them this little anecdote about Ben Het and how he happened to come to write Gone with the Wind. Would you care to tell them?
2: No, you, I, I'm afraid I'm going to screw that story up. So if you wanted to ask me about the, the boys coming to see him uh, over Scarface, we hear you, you're making a picture about the boss and all that. That, that story is very funny as well. But I, I want to hear your story about Gone with the Wind.
0: Well, it's, it's very quick because uh, David O. Selznick had, had shut down production, and part of it was because Clark Gable wanted to get rid of uh, the male director that he had known when he was just a struggling young actor. And, and also, uh, as you know, Selznick was not uh, uh, not really enamored of what he saw, so he brought Hecked in and said, "You know, I'm shutting down. I want you to help me write the script." Ben had never read Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And Selznick found out at that very moment. He said, oh, God, what are we going to do? And Ben said, well, don't you have somebody who gives you a synopsis, a a reader? Oh, yeah, Daryl said, oh, yeah. So he found the 30-page synopsis. That's what Ben Hecht read. And in 12 days, he and David Selznick stayed up 14 to 16 hours a day and wrote the entire script that you now see in Gone with the Wind and I just think that's the greatest story and not and his book is so literate i mean i must tell you your writing for your introductions of your movies and your explanations and behind the scenes stories ring of ben Hep's writing and i thought that the wow. first time i heard you so so there you go what do you think is the most unusual thing that you have discovered most surprising thing you've discovered about the making of a movie is it something about gone with the wind is it something about uh, orson welles uh, citizen kane what is the most interesting unusual thing to you
2: hmm, that's a, that's a good question i you know i'm i'm afraid rather than than citing just one specific incident, what, the way I'm going to twist your question is, um, is say that the thing that surprises me the most is how over the years the way people talk about film and write about film um, has become so fixated on the directors that it has altered the way people think about the history of Hollywood and motion pictures in general. And and this goes to, you know, your observation about how I always credit the writer, because I have found that not only is the contribution of the writer been unfairly diminished because of this obsession with directors, um, but nobody really knows about the role that the producers played in making these movies. And I would say that rather than focus on one surprising thing, I would say that it's terribly unjust <laughs> It's surprising that producers like Jerry Wald and Hal Wallace and Hunt Stromberg and all they are virtually forgotten figures in the history of motion pictures. If it's not David O. Selznick, uh, then nobody talks about it as their production. When, when in truth, these, these people really knew what they were doing, uh, you know, and, and can you imagine today uh, a, a company like Fox being run by a guy who was a writer and a story <laughs> editor? I mean, because that, that's what Daryl Zanuck was, right? I mean, he knew how to tell stories.
0: But the wonderful thing you said about a producer, you know, I'm so glad you said that because I don't know what most people feel about Robert Evans, but I must tell you, the go- godfather to me, from what I know, and I met Robert and I spent time with him and he asked me to pre-screen movies before he released them, which I always declined to do because I thought he might have been looking for a favorable favorable review and I thought it was a conflict of interest. I do not think The Godfather would be such the masterpiece it is. First of all, it's got you rooting for people you wouldn't like. I mean, they're murderers and they're drug dealers and the rest of it. But I think he single-handedly Save that film. Now, I may be wrong, so maybe you could elaborate on that.
2: No, come on. Who, who had a better track record as a producer for like six or eight years in a row than Robert Evans? I mean, it, it, he was the king of Hollywood in the early 70s. And a lot of people would argue that, you know, once you got out of the golden age of Hollywood... That period in the in the seventies, late sixties to early seventies, mid 70s was the best period for Hollywood movies ever, and Robert Evans was right on top of that. You know, you one of my all time favorite movies is Chinatown, and
0: you know that's it, is, Robert it, Evans it production. is it is uh, Chinatown is absolute classic. Jack Nicholson is wonderful in it. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film, and the. Uh, the other writer, director I don't know if he was a writer as much as he was a director, but I always used to look forward to his films, which he often functioned as also the producer, was Stanley Kramer. I always liked movies that were about something.
2: Well, yeah, he was an issues producer, you know. Yes. And it's yes. funny you say that because I just, I just wrote uh, an introduction for a Stanley Kramer film that's coming up on, uh, on Noir Alley in the fall. Uh, called the Sniper, uh, which uh, is a virtually unknown film, uh, but that is a Stanley Kramer production. So I'll I'll have a few things to say about Stanley Kramer then.
0: Oh my gosh, this is serendipity for crying out loud! All of these coincidences colliding, and <laughs> with my talking to Ed Muller, of whom I'm the uh, the biggest fan. Are you married and do you have children? <laughs>
2: I am married, and I am the child.
0: Oh, that's hilarious.
2: That's what I always tell everybody. I am the child. Oh, oh. God forbid I should have to be responsible for some other person. That That's not going to work. I'm barely oh. responsible for myself.
0: That's funny. One of my closest friends was Mort Lockman, who was uh, Bob Hope's head writer for 25 years. His office was right downstairs from my apartment, and he... My mentor when I started as a comic with Red Fox and my biggest encouragement, of course, was uh, Mort Lachman. And uh, I reluctantly became a father. I had been offered a, a, a quiz show by ABC and I turned it down because I didn't want to be a traffic cop. And when I came home, my wife started to whimper. We'd been married three years and because of my childhood, I didn't want a child. And, uh. When uh, when I said I turned on the job, she tears just got out of her eyes. And she said, oh, that means we can't have a baby. Well, Ed, I felt like a heel and very selfish. So I said, OK, you go ahead, had your baby. We tried it my way for three years. It didn't work. So she got pregnant. No, I didn't know that a child was forever. I had a career. But when my son was born, I had a life. But when my wife got pregnant, Mort Lockman used to go around saying, Johnny Barber has to grow his own friends. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely That's love so writers. I love wits. And, and the only place I see that kind of writing, that kind of wit and insight and erudition is when you do your show. When exactly is it on?
2: Well, the show is now on uh, twice a week. It's on Saturdays at uh, midnight Eastern time, 9 o'clock Pacific, and it's on what they call the Encore presentation. is on on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern time, uh, which means 7 o'clock for those early risers who had no fun on Saturday night at all. uh, They can get up bright and early at 7 a.m. on Sunday to watch the show. But you know, it, it, this, since this is live, I mean, it's a, a, a kind of uh, odd timing because I'm not on this month on TCM. I am uh, I'm on the Lam, so to speak, and uh, they're doing their Summer Under the Stars, uh, you know, w- which is a different star every day for the month. Of course, today was Audrey Totter, one of my one of my Dark City dames. Yes. Uh, so I'm happy to see uh, Audrey getting her due on TCM with a. Obviously, a bunch of noir films, not all, but a, quite a few represented. What, what
0: are two? Uh, there what were, are, you know, there were, go there ahead. were
2: two other women. Um, there were actually three other women that I was going to profile in my book uh, that didn't didn't come about. Uh, one of them was um, Claire Trevor and uh, also Lisbeth Scott and Rhonda Fleming. Those were the three oh, okay. actresses that I I couldn't quite maneuver into agreeing to the in-depth interview that was necessary to to appear in the book.
0: Well, you were wonderful Just, to Liz Scott. I guess it was about a month ago. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. Oh my gosh, it was what was uh, Pitfall exactly? And the yeah. male co-star with Liz was whom? Dick Powell. That's right. Oh, yes, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Because Dick Powell made this amazing transition from this sort of lyric, baritone song and dance man in the early 30s to this wonderful character as a hard-bitten detective. He was just fabulous in these films.
2: Yeah, very underrated, I think, still, for the stuff that he did in the 40s. And because he had a brilliant way with the wisecrack and and it's interesting to note um that a lot of actors who had to make that transition from the 1930s to the 1940s i don't want to oversimplify this but in the 30s you know um the the dialogue was so fast because that was like the era and and you know talkies had come in and people were so enamored of people who could talk really fast on screen, you know, and, and Cagney and these, and even Bogart in the thirties talked really fast.
0: Well, it was it's it,
2: interesting that it,
0: Oh, excuse me. I didn't it, mean to in the, it, go ahead.
2: It, it, in the 1940s, it was really interesting because then everybody slowed down. Uh, then the visuals became as interesting as the dialogue and it was okay to be laconic in the way you delivered a wisecrack. You didn't have to be quite so peppy about it, right? And uh, and Bogart was the one who led the way with that. And and there were stories about uh, uh, Hal Wallace saying, you know, if he talks like this and doesn't pick up the pace, uh, nobody's going to watch this movie. And, of course, the movie (laughs) was the Maltese Falcon And and Bogart sort of changed the way male actors delivered their smart wisecracks, uh, and that changed everything. And Dick Powell, just it was like he was playing in the 30s at 45 RPM, and then he slowed it down to 33 in the 40s, and it made a big difference.
0: Well, you brought up a couple of incredible points, first of all, about Humphrey Bogart. I think Humphrey Bogart is probably, Humphrey Bogart and maybe Cary Grant the only male actors in history who could be in every single scene in a film and you would still be watching it. But when you were talking about Pitfall and you credited the writer, the very opening scene, who played Dick Powell's wife? In the opening scene, they're sitting at the uh, uh, the breakfast table. Yeah, Jane Wyatt. Jane Wyatt. The banter between those two was so sparkling and contemporary it was it just flew off of it flew off of the page and you thank goodness you credited the writer who came in to write that particular scene would you mind very wrote, much he
2: actually he wrote the whole he wrote the whole screenplay uncredited his name's William Bowers and he wrote the entire screenplay uncredited
1: well, I because hope he, his... was un... he
2: was employed. He was a contract writer at Universal and he wrote it on the sly with Andre de Toth. Uh, it was a, you know, independent production, a regal picture, independent. And Bowers wrote the whole thing uh, uh, anonymously.
0: Well, I, I hope that some of his survivors have contacted you to thank you because I oh, I know his
2: wife. I know his wife very well. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great. Would you mind right now, Ed, um, my cohort on this show writes a wonderful uh, daily newsletter. It's the one of the best or one of the second best objective, well-written newsletters in America. It's called News Vandal. His name is Joe Satilli. He is also a movie and TV junkie and he would love to, usually I give him a segment by himself at the end of the show, but he would love to join you now. Would you mind if we brought Joe on and had him talk to you hey, also? Joe, on. Joe are or you the
1: there? Mayor. All Don. right, this is uh, Don. I'm going to actually bring on Joe. Folks, we're just going to go to a quick intermission. We'll be back in just a minute.
0: I want to thank you all for tuning in to listen to, to look at our little undertaking here. On BBS Radio, John Barber's World. And if you want to hear it again or look at it again, go to BBS Radio Archives, John Barber's World. Or you can go to my site, YouTube forward slash John Barber's dot com. Not only are these shows archived, but you will find highlights and excerpts from my 40 years in television and show business. Fabulous stories, some dramatic Some funny, some truly interesting, and a few outrageous, mad-as-hell rants, which I certainly enjoyed doing. You will also see the second-best documentary ever made about anybody in show business. It's called Ernie Kovacs Television's Original Genius. By far the best film ever made about somebody in show business was Searching for Sugar Man, which won an Oscar a few years ago. But most importantly to me, you will find the links to what I believe is the most important movie ever made in America. It's a runaway hit on Amazon, thanks to you and on Vimeo. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But also free on this site the original Garrison tapes, the last word in the assassination, the last word in the Garrison tapes. And if you are truly, truly interested, in the subject, go to Len Osanix Black Op Radio 50 Reasons for 50 Seasons. It's a fabulous undertaking and you should not miss it. This film would not exist on this site if it were not first for George Knapp, who saved it from obscurity. It was a runaway hit around the world, but blocked here. He saw it one day, put me on coast to coast, and saved it. But it's saved for history and saved for you by David Lispie. David Lispie was a young man who was a fan of the film, showed up at my house one day, said, I'm going to build you a site so the world and history can have this film and excerpts from your work. That was nine years ago. For nine years, he's been maintaining this site, and now he does it from Thailand, where he's an American expatriate. So I cannot thank David enough And you should be thanking him also. Also, I want to thank Mike Kim, the producer of this show. I've never met him, but he finds me the most fabulous and the most interesting guest anybody could ever have. And of course, I could not be doing the show if it weren't for the founders of BBS, Doug and Don Newsom. But again, the one I really want to thank, and I love all of the people I'm thanking, is my son, Christopher. Christopher Ernest Barber is his name, and you can see it twice on the credits of Criminal Minds. He's one of the co-executive producers and one of the writers, and he is by far the greatest thing that I ever helped to produce. And now back to my show. Welcome back to John Barber's World and the most interesting man on American television, even though he's tucked away on Turner Classic Movies is host of Finmar, Ed Muller. I was looking forward uh, to having Joe Satilli come on and talk to him because Joe was so anxious to him. But with, we're going live for the first time with video and sometimes there are technical problems. There is a technical problem in getting through to Joe on Skype or his phone number in San Francisco. So it's back to talking to Ed. Much to my delight, I got them all to myself. Ed, during the break, I mentioned this little story to you about, uh, about uh, Ben Heck. Do you mind if I repeat it so the audience can hear it?
2: No, ab- I, no absolutely not. I, I exclaimed at the end of the story, I think that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. So uh, we, we may as well share it with everybody else.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I was working as a mailboy at Paramount Studios. I was about 16 or 17, 18 years of age at the most. And uh, I picked up a paperback book called The Child of the Century because I saw the name Hecht. I thought it was related to Hecht Hill Lancaster. And I was interested in movies and stuff like that. And then I, the very first sentence in the book had me it locked up. It says, I've always wanted to write a book about myself. Haven't we all? And he had me from that point on. And the stories are phenomenal. Well, and I read it in about two sittings. And it's 600 pages long. And I'm just a kid. And I don't have a typewriter. So I get out a pad and a pencil and paper. And I send the note to his publisher. I don't know how to get a hold of him. He said his address was NYAC, New York. And I just asked him to forward it to NYAC, New York. And I said, I just read his book. And I'm so sorry that I ever picked it up to do so. That was my opening sentence, because anything I read after this is going to pale in comparison. A week later, I got a two and a half page handwritten note from Ben Hecht. He was coming to Laguna, California. And he, had, and he was going to do uh, he had a one man play called Winkelberg, and he said John is going to be at the Laguna Playhouse and I'd like you to come down spend the week with me as my assistant and watch how this goes I spent the entire week with Ben Hecht listening to his stories stories that weren't even in the book and I'm so sorry that I never kept the letter it's just astonishing
2: that is fantastic I, I'd yeah. like to think that stuff like that still happens, but I don't know. I ben Hecht is one of the great uh, characters ever, in my estimation, really.
0: Oh, yes. Wow. In the, the stories I'm kind of choked talks.
2: up by that story, <laughs> I've well, tell you.
0: Uh, you know, and also uh, uh, John Barrymore, he tells a story about Barrymore becoming such a drunk. He was unemployable. And a guy named Albert Decker, an artist, a painter, and uh, Ben Hecht were literally supporting him. And uh, they had to go to. Uh, you, m- you might remember the Earl Carroll. I think you mean. Theater. I
2: think you mean. Do you mean John Decker?
0: Uh, I think you mean John Decker. Yeah, Decker's yeah, yeah. John right? Decker. Albert was the yeah, uh, was yeah. the actor. Thank you so much. The Robert. actor.
2: Albert was the actor. John Decker. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. and you remember uh, the Earl Carroll Theater? I believe it was on Sunset and Vine, and uh, Ben yep. had to, uh, to go and rescue him there because. Evidently, what had happened is John Barrymore got up on stage and urinated on the curtain. And so so they had to come and drag John away. And Charles MacArthur, who was Ben Heck's partner in the writing of the front page, said, John Barrymore, the critic, and not the actor anymore. But he told a wonderful story about John Barrymore's attempt to seduce a countess in England while he was drunk and trying to perform Hamlet. I mean, the stories in this book are beyond fantastic. The one last story I want to tell you, because you might remember it, uh, my being a critic. You know, when I was doing that, they had such a thing as a fairness doctrine and equal time in television. And at the time of John Kennedy's murder, actually, a company could only own five television stations or five radio stations or five newspapers if someone for example when i interviewed ronald reagan when he was running for second term of governor i had to have a democrat on then i had to have a socialist on then i had to have a nazi on because we had to give them equal time i bought this movie Uh, it was a movie called soylent green with charlton heston do you remember it
2: Sure. that's
0: that's exactly right And, you know, Don Rickles earned a living being savage and you can always get bigger laughs if you're being cruel. And I did some that sometimes if I didn't like a film. But at that time, if anybody in the newspaper or anybody on television or radio savaged a critic real badly, that critic could get equal time. Well, I happen to say that I should say something nice about this dreadful movie. So I'll say the sets are beautiful but they would be more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of the actors. So, hey, but what happened? Now.
1: Joe Satile is with us. I just to Oh, break Joe is here finally? You
0: know. Yeah, he's with us. Okay, let me just finish this quickly. Anyway, the producer sued, spent five years in the courts. The Supreme Court ruled that he could not have equal time because John Barber's reviews were of no public import. Anyway, there you go. Joe, <laughs> welcome finally to the show. You are finally going to talk to a man... Who is your equal when it comes to speaking the English language? Joe, say hello to Ed Muller.
1: Well, hello, Ed Muller. And actually, he's probably my better, most likely my better. And I'm one of those guys who doesn't have any fun on Saturday night because I watch Noir Alley on Sunday mornings, which is actually more of a fun of me uh, more of a function of me being an insomniac than a fuddy duddy, but I probably am a fuddy duddy as well. <laughs>
2: it's nice to meet you, Joe.
1: Good to meet you. You know, I wanted to... I, we don't have a lot of time, so I did want to get one question out. And it's really about the role of noir in American culture and life at the end of World War II. Because it, I think about the lost generation and the ro- role that they played in processing World War I. And to what extent do you think film noir was American culture processing the experiences of World War II?
2: Well, um... I'm going to answer that in an odd way because I'm going to say that I think it's probably less than a lot of people think, but no less significant because I really think that a lot of what was happening with the film noir movement was born out of the Depression and because um, Hollywood had to do so much to boost the morale of America during the Depression. And then immediately when the Depression ends, we start ramping up towards World War II. And then it's like they have to do their bit for World War II as well. And I think what happened was there were a lot of artists who, writers and directors, but writers mostly, who wanted to tell more adult stories where everything wasn't cut and dried. and and they could be more ambiguous and more ambivalent. And it wasn't until the war ended that now, that essentially now that we've saved the world, (laughs) now we have the freedom to go out and write stories that don't have to end happily ever after, which was sort of the subversive revelation of film noir. Um, and, And it just freed up artists to do things. And that that organic movement that i call it in hollywood uh... you can see it's it still impresses people uh... and is vital today even though it didn't last very long right because the politics on the one hand politics kind of quashed it and on the other hand television came along and proved such a threat to the movie business that movies had to adapt and go widescreen and go technicolor and all this stuff To attract people, um, so that look and feel of noir was very brief, uh, but but obviously very very powerful.
1: Would you say noir? That answered
2: your question. No, it it did. Would you say that visually?
1: Would you say visually noir anticipated television because you just made this great juxtaposition? Because when I think of noir, I think of intimacy in terms of the the framing and the, the lighting. And that intimacy ended up in sort of the live playhouse productions on television and and film goes the other direction. So did Noir kind of lose out a little bit to television in that way as well, losing the, the uh,
2: I don't I don't think there's any there's any question of that. And and television noir, if you will, is still something that is relatively unexplored, but it's there. And and a lot of the actors who were synonymous with film noir ended up doing a lot of television especially the actors who were in b-movies because television required the exact same skills that you had to have to make a lot of b-movies it's like don't blow takes because we don't have a lot of film
1: right and on tv it was like don't blow takes because we're recording this live 60 seconds
2: so um, yeah, I think that is a pretty accurate assessment. When when people say so, film noir died around 1952 or 53. I say no, it didn't die. It just moved to TV.
0: Right. Well, that, Joe and uh, Don just told me that we're. Running out of time. Joe, where were you? Why couldn't we get a hold of you earlier?
1: Uh, I was here. Just a technical difficulty in contacting me through Skype.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Don, for that. We'll be hearing a lot more from Don. Uh, Eddie, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being the first one on our first live video show around the world. You're just an absolute treasure. Look forward to talking to you again. And Joe, your news vandal is absolutely Wonderful this week. Tell folks where they can get it and where they can see you next.
1: Uh, just go to newsvandal.com. It's uh, spelled just like it sounds and actually have a new piece up uh, on the blackout of Alex Jones and InfraWars and censorship by tech uh, organizations, tech uh, businesses. So go to newsvandal.com.
0: Well, thank you. That that article about the blackout of Alex Jones is really an important article and a really important subject About the Bill of Rights in America. Thank you again so much. Thank you for watching and listening, and we'll see you in two weeks with Mrs. Alex Jones.
2: The dark days are done,
0: and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sonny, you one so true, I love you.